always nice to turn to Philippians. It's um, almost certainly um, Paul's favorite church. I'm sure he wouldn't like me saying that, but it was the, the church that he got on best with, the church that loved him most. It was the church that showed his love. Even throughout this letter, you can see just how much Philippians, uh, the Philippian church meant uh, to Paul. They were the ones that supported Paul. Um, it's the first church, of course, that was founded in what we now call Europe. Had this uh, Macedonian call, you remember. And uh, uh, Paul went across and he comes to Philippi and uh, has some remarkable <coughs> conversions there. You remember Lydia, the, the rich businesswoman who was converted uh, down by the riverside. And then uh, uh, you have the, uh, uh, the, the, the slave girl who was possessed by uh, a demon and she was uh, cleansed and uh, she joins the church and uh, then, of course, you have the jailer, the Philippian jailer, don't you, who uh, was there when uh, Paul and Silas were in jail and uh, how amazingly he was struck and converted along with his household. And so they were sort of founding members of the church and obviously many others who were affected by their testimony, a very diverse church, uh, socially at least, and uh, they supported Paul enormously and they sent money to him when he went to uh, Macedonia throughout the whole of northern Greece. They were giving him money and sending him money and uh, praying for him and, and saying they were praying for him. And now Paul, when he writes this letter, it's one of the prison letters. So he's imprisoned in, in, uh, in uh, Rome, maybe just house arrest, probably not his final imprisonment, but there he is and he writes this letter and uh, he sends it back with uh, a guy who's come from Philippi just because he's so concerned to visit Paul, knowing how much he's in trouble. And this man, Epaphroditus, comes along and uh, he uh, comes with another gift for the Apostle Paul, financial gift. And, uh, Paul, and, and he falls ill and he nearly dies. We're told all this in Philippians. And uh, eventually, uh, Paul says he's just so grateful, but he's going to, Epaphroditus is now well enough to go back to Philippi and he's going to take this letter with him. So uh, that's what it is. It's a thank you note, really, above and beyond everything else. And uh, it's a, a great joy because uh, Paul isn't severe. I'm preaching through Galatians at the moment in my home church at Grace. And that's such a different kettle of fish because there's so many difficult things that Paul has to say to the people in Galatia. So it's a great relief to turn to uh, Philippians again and, and, and uh, look at what Paul says there. But it's just full of love and tenderness. It's hardly concerned about anything. Just two women who aren't getting on in the church. That's never happened since, I'm sure. But there they were, two women getting, you know, and uh, they have to be dealt with. But that's about all there is. And um, otherwise, it's uh, just a matter of, of just, you know, putting them on the right way, showing them Christ, that fantastic hymn to the Lord Jesus in, in chapter 2 of Philippians. Just amazing um, a vision of Christ there. But anyway, that's all just background. And here it is. I mean, see how it starts off. I'm not going to go beyond uh, verse 11. But really, it's, it's a pattern of the way that Paul prays pastorally uh, for um, the Philippians. And presumably, it's a model that he uses for all the churches. But he particularly feels it for these Philippians. Paul and Timothy. Um, Timothy had spent a long time in Philippi, so they knew him. Uh, servants of Christ Jesus. He, d he doesn't say he's even an apostle, uh, which is normally what he does. He doesn't have to assert his authority or state his authority even because he just knows that they accept what he's going to say. He knows they have the highest view of him 
and so on and so forth. So it just says we're servants of uh, Christ Jesus. To all God's saints, it should be holy people, fair enough, in the NIV. The saints, it's the same word we were looking at um, this morning when we were saying sanctify, looking at holiness being a key component, characteristic of the Church of Jesus Christ. To all the saints, same word as sanctify, those who have been set apart by God to serve him, set apart to, to, uh, to, to be a blessing to God and his kingdom. Uh, to all God's saints in Christ Jesus of Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Deacons don't often get a mention, but they do in Philippi. And uh, so you've got the elders there and the, the, the deacons. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that, otherwise we'd be here all night. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the usual greeting of Paul. Grace and peace. Grace the unmerited favor of God poured out to all his people. Peace, one of the greatest blessings that comes as a result. Perhaps the ultimate blessing, because is that, you know, in, in Hebrew, Paul's thinking like that. He's thinking of shalom, that huge comprehensive blessing which comes of being everything being right with you because God has blessed you and has saved you. Grace is the origin. Peace is the ultimate blessing. Grace and peace uh, to, um, to all of you. Uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then <coughs> we come on to the, the part that I want to, to look at. And um, I want to just look at three things. I don't often alliterate, but I'm going to this time. I want to look at the, the, the manner of Paul's praying, and then the motivation behind Paul's praying, and then the, the matter, the, the substance. What does he actually pray for? when it comes to his prayers for these people. That's all contained in this passage here. And um, first of all, um, the manner of Paul's praying, or how to pray. How do we pray? What is the, the way in which we pray? The manner of Paul's prayer. And um, here it is, and just reading verses uh, 3 to 6 again, just to fix it in our minds. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. This is the manner of his praying. And there are three um, sort of adverbs here. Uh, or, or we can make them adverbs, the manner in which he prays. He prays thankfully in verse 3. He prays joyfully in verse 4. And he prays confidently in verse 6. Those are the words um, that are used. So, you know, when he's praying for his people, I mean, this is, should be true for all of us, but it's certainly true for those with pastoral concern for a particular flock, these, the manner of prayer should be always like this. Uh, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's crutching, sometimes it's all sorts of things. But anyway, these are the ways in which he prays for these people. Let's look at the first one, thankfully. I thank my God every time I remember you. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, and it's a challenge to, to, to pastors, certainly, but to all of us. When we're praying for the church, I mean, I'm you know, going to have a church prayer meeting this week. At least you haven't cancelled that for the Queen's Jubilee. That's great. So there we are. How, are you, how do you pray for the church, for your fellow church members? Um, 
Could you say this? I thank my God every time I remember you. You say, well, generally it's the case, a few exceptions, of course. But no, here he's praying thankfully as he remembers them. He knows all of these people, or at least he knows all the ones he, he used to. It's about 10 years on since he was personally there, as far as we know. He's visiting on his second missionary journey uh, uh, originally. That's when he founds the church. And now here we are, probably about 10 or 11 years on. He's in, in, in this house arrest, as I say, in Rome. But he's remembering them. He's heard all about them. He's interested in them. So he's heard by letter. And Epaphroditus has told them all about them as well. And so he's praying thankfully for them all. And he's praying joyfully down there in verse um, uh, 4. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. Do you remember this morning, that was the first thing, wasn't it? In the, the list of things that we could uh, derive from what Jesus prayed for his church. What he is praying now in glory, uh, ever living to intercede for us. What he prays should be the marks, the characteristics of a New Testament church. The first thing we saw, possibly to our surprise, was joy. He wanted them to be a joyful people. And he said, remember, it wasn't just worldly joy, was it? It was my joy. It was the joy of the Lord that he wants in us. Not just to be happy, not just to go and have fixed smiles on our faces and sing jolly songs, because that can just simply be worldly joy. Not that there's anything wrong with a jolly song, as long as it's biblical. But the point is, it isn't just worldly joy. It's a specific kind of joy. It's uh, godly joy. Just as when we sorrow, we should have not just worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow. The fact that we're Christians affects these things. And we look upon these things differently. We look upon joy and sorrow differently. They're different things. They are um, changed as ideas and thoughts in our minds because we're Christians. And the joy of the Lord is joy in knowing that, I said this morning, joy in knowing that we are part of God's plan, that we play a part in God's plan, the joy of knowing a clear conscience, the joy of knowing fellowship with God, um, the, the joy of, of being used in his service, all of these different things which are there. Paul prays joyfully. Now these two first things which describe the manner of his praying, the fact he prays thankfully and joyfully why, does he, why is he able to pray thankfully and joyfully? Well, verse 5 <coughs> tells us here specifically, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is what absolutely thrills him. If we want our brothers and sisters in the church and in a church prayer meeting to pray thankfully and joyfully for us, then... It's going to be because they are aware of the fact that you are partners in the gospel. In other words, they, he is thankful and he is joyful because of the faithfulness of his brothers and sisters in Philippi. This is what amazes him. This is what fills him with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God and thankfulness to them. Joy because he remembers all that they mean to him in their partnership in the gospel. I already explained what that partnership meant. Um, sometimes it's translated the word fellowship. I think it's better to translate a partnership here, because you actually begin to understand a little bit more of the meaning of the word. We use the word fellowship very loosely, don't we? 
we think we're having fellowship when we just have a cup of coffee downstairs at the end of the meeting and talk about anything except Christian things. And we say we're having a time of fellowship. Well, biblically, we're not. We're, as Christians together, talking about things that don't relate to the church. There's nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly good. But it's not what is meant by that word here. <clears throat> and that's why when it's translated partnership, it's actually often a better way of expressing what is going on here. Because partnership in the gospel, we start thinking immediately, well, they're, they're working together in godly things, in, in Christian things. And that's what is the case here. Their partnership was in their um, support of him, in prayer, their support of him financially, their support in him in personnel, sending people. Maybe they send other people apart from Epaphroditus. Their support of him in tangible ways. Their support of him because he was minister of the gospel and they wanted to do that. And of course they didn't just support him, they supported Epaphroditus, they supported their own pastors and so on and so forth. They, they had elders and, and deacons. They supported them, I'm no doubt, in the work as well. They were all in it together. That partnership was there. So I suppose <clears throat> if we want to have a church prayer meeting where we're praying for one another, and we're not simply praying for somebody's bad toe or for them to get better from an illness, which is what normally occupies our thoughts in a prayer meeting, is if we think about it in these terms, then we start thinking about what we're doing for the gospel, what we're doing for Christ as a church. And that is fuel for prayer. It also is a stimulus for prayer. If I'm really working for the Lord in the church, in this church, whatever it may be, then that will attract prayer. That will encourage other godly people to be thankful for me. That will encourage other people to be joyful. Because they, other godly people won't be saying, oh, it's only me, I have to do all the work, I'm doing everything. They, they will say, no, there's all these people. Wow, I'm so thankful. I'm in a church where there's a real partnership in the gospel. We're doing things together. And that really does inspire prayer. I think sometimes <coughs> Christian churches, I mean true Christian churches, are prayerless or less prayerful than they should be because there isn't that sense of partnership in the gospel. It's the faithfulness of the believers as a whole which causes the apostle to pray in this manner. So he prays thankfully and joyfully because of their faithfulness, but he also prays confidently, and this doesn't depend on their faithfulness, this depends upon the Lord's faithfulness. That's why it says in verse 6 here, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So the reason for his confidence is not the same as the reason for his thanksgiving and, and joy. That's focused in this passage on the performance of his brothers and sisters in the church. But the reason he prays with confidence, knowing that his prayers will be answered, is based entirely upon his faith in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is very different. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. They're going through persecution. They're finding it hard in Philippi. But he is confident that they are going ultimately to be those who fulfill their ministry. And they are going to be those who ultimately are going to be brought to the day of Christ Jesus. He's talking about the end of the world here. He's talking about the day of judgment. 
this work is going to be completed. Sometimes we feel, don't we, as though, well, we're not, we, we're not sure whether we're going to be able to carry on or we're not sure that we can fulfill our ministry, whatever it is. But God is faithful, and we know full well that um, those he has chosen, those he has blessed, those he has brought to, to Christ will ultimately be um, be there in the end and complete the work they have to do, which is a matter of great confidence anyway. But here he is confidently praying for them because he knows that his prayers will be answered. This is important, isn't it? When we pray, do we really believe that our prayers are going to be answered? Do we believe that the work that God has begun is going to be brought to completion? Or do we lack in faith? You know, I mean, I think... Some of you claim to be good Calvinists. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God doesn't start a work and say, well, it wasn't a bad job. 80% of the people who came to trust in me were saved and ultimately brought to heaven. That wasn't bad. But the Lord doesn't work like that. He doesn't just save 80% of the people who come to him. He saves 100% of the people who come to him. And they do all the work that he requires of them because he will equip them to do that. And so there's confidence in that. And if we believe in the sovereignty of God, then that helps us to pray. The manner of our prayer is quite different. Somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God prays far more confidently than a person who doesn't. It stands to reason. That's the case. This puts, you know, makes it a total lie of the fact that people say, oh, well, if you think God's going to do everything, then what's the point of doing anything? What's the point of asking? Quite the reverse. Because prayer is part of God's purpose and we are definitely assured that our prayers will be answered, especially for the church, especially for the work that we do for the gospel. So these are the reasons he prays thankfully and joyfully and confidently. That's the manner of his praying. What's his motivation? Look at verses 7 and 8. He says in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I think the thing that comes through so powerfully here is just simply um, his, his love and affection for all of them. His, his just his tremendous love. For all his brethren. And just notice how often he says, you may have noticed it as we, we went through it, but he keeps on talking about all of them. I mean, even in verse um, 1, um, to all God's saints in verse 1. But then um, you look in, in, in verse 4, um, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray. And uh, again, in verse uh, 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And uh, verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Um, he's saying this all the time. He's praying for all of them. He has a love for all of them. He doesn't say he loves some more than others. He has this equal love because it is the love of God in his heart for them. He doesn't love them differentially because some are more like him and his better friends, or some are more effective in their witness than others, some have fewer problems than others, so he loves them better. Not like that at all. He has this love for all of them, and this is what drives him on, his tremendous love for all his brothers and sisters. 
And he says, look, the reason why I love you all equally is because you have all equally shared in the grace of God. And that's what he says here. All of you share in God's grace with me. He says, look, you know, I love you as I love myself. Why? Because you've been transformed in exactly the same way. You've been brought into the same family as I have. You're my brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ is my older brother. We've all shared equally in the grace of God. Wherever we were brought from, we've all shared equally in the unmerited favor of God, which has transformed our lives and knitted us together to be as one. We're in the same body. How can I love my hand and not my foot? I, 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 love, I love myself. We are to love others as we love ourselves. Well, if we love ourselves, then we must love others who are in the body of Christ along with us. We share equally in the grace of God. This is a <clears throat> tremendously powerful motivation. This is what we should think about, what we should dwell on when we think about praying in a church prayer meeting or even on our own when we're praying for other members. I don't know whether you have a, a prayer list where you pray for different people in the church over a period of time, whatever it may be. Some churches do that. Well, okay, but look, you love all of these people, or you should. And uh, you do so because they've all shared in the equally in the grace of God. That's so important to understand that. The same gracious love of God has been shown to them. So that's our motivation when we pray, and we need to consider that. And then we just come on to um, the matter of the prayer. So we looked at how he prays, the manner of his prayer, why he prays, the motivation. And now we're looking at what he prays. And um, all of this is about prayer, but it doesn't come on to actually what he's praying for until um, we, we get to, to verse 9. He says, and this is my prayer. Well, you say, well, about time, Paul. We've heard a lot about your praying, what you're doing and how you do it. But let, let's, what are you actually praying for? And this, again, can be a model for us and for our prayer meetings, the sort of things we should um, pray for. And again, you know, I, I, in my time, I've been in many, many different prayer meetings in many, many different situations. And some prayer meetings seem to be better than others. I don't know how really to judge them. But uh, some are more passionate than others. Um, some people don't know how to pray, and some come along and never seem to pray, and you wonder why they've come. And all sorts of different things like that. But very often, the prayers that we offer in our prayer meetings are way, way different to the kinds of prayers that you see in the New Testament, or indeed anywhere in the Bible. And when you look at the church prayer meetings of, of the New Testament, they, they are not accurately reflected in the generality of our prayer meetings. And I'm not trying to be too critical. I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure how much I help when I'm in a prayer meeting. But the fact of the matter is that the prayer meetings of the Bible are so different. Um, they're not obsessed with physical things. I, I think we sometimes get embarrassed, don't we, about things we pray for. We find it easier to pray for physical health issues um, than about other things. You don't find people pray for mental health issues as much as they pray for physical health issues, possibly because they're embarrassed to do so. And then at the other end of, um, of that scale are spiritual health issues. 
And so if we think that somebody is spiritually unhealthy in the church, we are unlikely to pray for them publicly in the prayer meeting in a meaningful way. I think it's out of embarrassment more than anything else, but it's a great shame because it isn't biblically valid and it isn't what we should be doing because that whole thing is almost inverse when it comes to the scripture. You, you find it's not wrong. Obviously, there are examples of praying for people's physical health in the scripture, but it is certainly not the major thing. The main thing is prayer for spiritual health and spiritual growth. That's indisputable. So we should measure our prayer meetings according to that priority, I think. Um, but there we are. Um, that's how it is. But look what he's saying here. Look at the things that he's praying for. So, you know, it's pretty clear, isn't it, what he prays for? Um, there, there, there are basically four things here he's praying for. And they should be part of what we should pray for, I'm sure. Not, it's not an, ex an exhaustive list any more than the lists of the gifts or the fruit, the spirit are exhaustive lists. But these are things that are you know, primary examples, things he prays for this church, which has no major problems. But nevertheless, these are the things um, he prays for. So this is my prayer, verse 9. Okay, what's the first thing? First thing is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. It's a great thing to pray for, isn't it? But pray for one another. Um, privately, yes, but in a prayer meeting as well. Praying for an increase in love. Why? Well, one of the reasons is, of course, it's the motive for more prayer. We've just seen that. The motivation, as far as Paul was concerned, was his great love that he had for them. And he had already experienced their love. But love is one of those things that you can always do more of. It's one of those glorious things that you can never do enough of. And there can never be too much love. And he's praying that they will abound in love more and more. And he's not just praying, you know, the trouble is we debase the term love, don't we? And we think of it as, well, just as an emotional reaction. And, of course, that's how it's used so much in, in the world. But you know here he's speaking about um, Christian love and he's defining it he says it's this love is um, something that will abound in knowledge and depth of insight so what's he speaking about here he's talking about the knowledge of God how do we grow in the knowledge of God well obviously through our knowledge of scripture not being satisfied with a shallow understanding of the scriptures, wanting to know God, using the scriptures as a means of knowing God more. Um, we can so easily remain to the very superficial knowledge of God. All I know, I'm saved. Um, you know, um, but look, we have to grow in our knowledge of God. Um, God knows us. When we say God knows us, we're, we're, we're thinking of something very, very intimate, something very, very deep. We are known by God. And in a biblical sense, that is incredibly um, deep and profound and, and humbling and amazing and glorious that we are known by God. And we know God in return. We will never know God as well as he knows us, but it is a reciprocal thing. And he wants us, who are known by him, 
to know him, to grow in our intimacy, in our relationship, in our understanding of him. We gain this from the scripture. Whenever we come to any passage in the scripture where we're doing our own personal reading, one of the questions we can ask ourselves is, how is this helping me to know God better and more deeply? What is it telling me about God I didn't know? And how should I respond? I just don't want just a list of the things about God I should know. How, how do these different attributes of God, how should they affect how I respond to God and grow in my knowledge of God? Knowledge and, it says here, depth of insight. And this is talking about um, our growing experience of God, our growing experience of his love in our, our own hearts and lives. Um, this morning we were seeing how love is absolutely um, crucial to what um, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us, that it is, it, it, with, without love, everything else that Christ is praying for us is meaningless and will disappear. But where there is truly love in a, in a fellowship of the Lord's people, then all these other qualities will, will gather and be, be there as well. And so it is here, just as we have the new command in the middle of that, those discourses of the Lord that we were looking at this morning in John 13. A new command I give you, that you love one another. And the power of love, of course, all of this is known by us. But we need to have this experience, this depth of insight or depth of experience is talking about here. Um, so it's knowledge of God and depth of experience of God. And he says he wants our love to abound more and more in those things. The more we know God, and the more we experience of God, that is how we will grow in our love for God. If we want our love for God to be superficial, well, don't bother. If you want our love for God and for one another to grow, then we do so by knowing more of God and experiencing more of God in our lives. That's what he, he prays for, these people here. And then um, the second thing is, and they will follow on actually, but let's just take it as a second thing, verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best. Spiritual discernment is a gift. Um, like all gifts, some Christians have more of the gift than others. Christian leaders ought to have a lot of this gift because they're going to need it perhaps more than other people. And, but uh, spiritual discernment is something that is a gift of God, and we have whatever we have, but we can pray for more. And we can pray that God will increase our discernment. Um, we need to discern in our own lives how we, how we live, what we choose to do. I'm, I'm thinking of that verse in 1 Corinthians where um, Paul says everything is permissible, but... Uh, 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 not everything is, is, is suitable, not everything is uh, constructive. And uh, we have to exercise discernment in our lives all the time as, and make choices all the time about what we do and how we live our lives. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that, yes, through our love, we may be able to discern what is best. Some people never seem to grow in discernment. Some people always have to be told by others what they should be doing. Some people are always going to a pastor and saying, what shall I do? And it's great to consult with other Christians and, and to um, 
to gain from the discernment and wisdom of others. But all equally, we need to grow in our own discernment so that we, we don't have to say, oh, I, I have no idea to do that. Let me ask somebody. So that we can grow in a situation where we know how to discern things for ourselves from the word of God. It's good to pray for that in a prayer meeting. Pray that the church may grow in spiritual discernment. Um, I'm not sure I've hardly ever been in a church meeting where people have, have prayed for that, that we, they may be a more spiritually discerning church. People come in, you need discernment as to um, what their spiritual situation is and how you should approach them and what you should say to them and who are the most suitable people to speak to them. You know, I'm sure God trusts to a church that's growing in spiritual discernment as a body. I'm sure the Lord trusts more outsiders to such a church, wouldn't you? If you knew the church was, well, that's a church that really knows how to deal with people. It's full of spiritual discernment. Wouldn't you say, well, that's the church I want to send somebody to who's not a believer yet? And the Lord looks upon us and he sees our hearts. He sees what we're doing. He sees whether we're concerned to grow in all these things. And uh, he will um, reward us by his grace as a result of these things. And of course, there are a couple of other things which are perhaps even more obvious um, so that you may be able to discern what is best. And here's the third thing, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And um, this is talking about purity of life um, and purity of lifestyle, perhaps you could, you could say here. Pure in my heart, blameless in my actions, the way I live out my life day to day. These things are intimately related, of course. If I'm pure within, my motives are as they should be. Um, then it is likely that my lifestyle will not be a mess, total contradiction of what I should be as a Christian. Quite good at putting on a good show, particularly on a Sunday. But actually, I'm a pretty mess, really. I don't really live as a Christian uh, the rest of the week. It doesn't really affect me that hugely. And Paul is saying, look, this is a serious matter for all of us as believers in the body of Christ. Surely this is something that should be a matter for prayer. Surely this should be something that is a matter for a prayer meeting. When somebody hears a prayer like this in a prayer meeting, they suddenly say, well, hang on a minute, this is important. Why are they praying for that? How does this affect me? Am I somebody who should be joining in in this prayer? Or am I somebody perhaps who should be noticing this prayer and, and seeking the Lord to sort out my own life? So that I'm more holy and I'm less blame, blameful, if that's a word. I need to be those who say yes. Well, look, see how growth can come out of a prayer meeting. When you're really praying for these things and everyone in that prayer meeting realizes that these things are important and are fit subjects for prayer, that's going to make all of us think about it. And it may have a very salutary effect by the power of the Holy Spirit upon our own lives, thinking of ourselves first before we think of other people. So, purity of life, purity of lifestyle. And then the, the fourth and final thing that um, Paul uh, says he prays for here is that they may be filled, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And... Um, I suppose this is pretty obvious, but how often do we pray for these things? And, um, you know, I'm, as I say, I'm going through Galatians at the moment. I haven't actually come to Galatians 5 yet, but, you know, have the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit as Paul gives it 
um, in the second half of, of Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Would you pray for any of those things in a prayer meeting? Would you, would you pray in your next church prayer meeting that your fellow believers will exercise gentleness in all their dealings and uh, that they may enjoy peace in their lives, that your church will be characterized by goodness and that every member would be self-controlled because they were under the control of the Holy Spirit. Is that the sort of thing you'd pray for? I mean, there's endless scope there, isn't there? To have endless prayer meetings, praying for the fruit of the Spirit, that it may be evident in your church. You know, sometimes you get people, I've had people come up to me and say, I never know what to pray for. Well, this is just a sample, isn't it, of the sort of things that we could pray for. And um, it, it, would, it would sober up a prayer, a prayer meeting. It would make some prayer meetings think, wow, we haven't heard this before. This is something that really is important. And yet Paul says, this is what he does. This is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is praying for. I, I, he says, I'm praying that you will exhibit all the fruit of the Spirit and that uh, this will be evident in your fellowship. And they would think, wow, thank you, Paul. It's fantastic you're praying that for us. And you're giving us a few tips too on how we might pray for ourselves. And the last thing I say is this. Look, the last words there in verse 11. All to the glory and praise of God. And so whenever he's praying, whatever he's praying for, he's always praying and consciously praying that it's to the praise and glory of God. He's not doing it for any other reason. He's not the schoolmaster saying, I'm like this, you should be doing it like that. No, he's saying it because this is for the glory of God. What is he concerned for? What, is he, what matters to Paul more than anything else? That the churches that he has founded and where he's seen people be converted, amazingly, that they should glorify God, because there they are. They often say the church is the advance guard, the vanguard, the advance guard of the new creation, left here below in the old creation, not taken to glory as soon as we're converted, even though that would give God less grief and us less grief. He chooses to leave us here so that we may be the advance guard of the new creation, build his kingdom, bring other people into his kingdom, and live as creatures of the new kingdom will live. And that's what we must do. And he says, pray like this. Praying for you, but that you may know these things. You yourselves pray like this, and you will become the people that will glorify 